again, it's silly and simple to talk about golf when you're comparing it to fourth degree burns, but it was my recovery process. It was so important to tell other people that there's nothing as powerful as a made up mind. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're doing it for somebody else, like as a doctor, you're trying to help somebody, as a cop, you're trying to help somebody, or personally, when you're alone with your thoughts, which everybody should know, it's the most dangerous place you're ever gonna be, and you're there all the time. You're stuck with your thoughts all the time. That was a big part of me knowing that I was okay, was to get back to just the normalcy and to be good again that's something I used to be good at. Nothing changed. I played golf before, I play golf now. What's different? Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and you guessed it, I'll be your host again this week. Well, as I approach my 50th episode, I can say that doing this podcast is one of the best decisions that I ever made, because each and every week I get to interview some of the most incredible people in the world, leaders in healthcare and in business, who have taught me so much. I also feel inspired every week, and this podcast has given me a new appreciation for the good in people and the unbreakable human spirit. While none of my amazing guests have been more inspiring than the man you are about to meet today, I had the pleasure of meeting retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly when we were both presenters at TEDx Grand Canyon University back in March. When you meet Jason, you can't help but being impressed inspired, and frankly, just like the guy. We hit it off, and I'm so proud not only to have him on this podcast, but to consider him a friend. Jason's journey chronicles his fight for life, his triumph over tragedy, and the inspiration that enables him to continue to overcome unimaginable adversity. His personal narrative exemplifies that the power of the human spirit can never be underestimated or extinguished. His story is also a testament of true love and the dedication Jason and his wife have in their commitment to honor their family and the vows of marriage in good times and bad. His story is one of life, rebirth, and transformation. Jason represents the human experience at its very best and is sent from despair to describing himself as the luckiest person alive. Jason is the subject of the book Burning Shield by Landon Napoleon, which we'll talk about today. If you haven't read it, Go to Amazon right now and buy it. Well, this is when I normally would tell Jason's story, but I'm going to let him tell him. Jason, all I can say right now is I'm so excited to speak to you. It's been great getting to know you, and I can't wait for my audience to get to know you as well. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so very much, Dr. Orsini, Doc, Tony. Yeah, we got to... I'm just Tony. Unless you're my mother, then then I'm Anthony. 
That's in, in trouble. If you're in trouble with your mom, uh, I love being on your show. I really appreciate the invitation, and it's nice to be so much more relaxed than the last time we were together when we were spending about eleven hours getting ready for that TEDx talk. Well, you and I speak a lot in public, but I can say I think we share. That was a pretty stressful moment. It's very different to do the TEDx talks. Yeah, it's an intense day, and. Because we are experienced speakers, we probably could be considered professional speakers. You have all this build. I compared it to like a wedding, right? like all this buildup and the stress and this anxiety. And then after 12 minutes, it was over. I'm like, well, that was it. I, was- <laughs> I got all worked up for that. So it was uh, ended up being a wonderful day. I did. Yeah, we got to make some new friendships, came off without a hitch. And I don't know if. You know, if you felt the same way, but it was the first time I had been in front of an audience in 13 months. And that just felt amazing to, to feel the energy in the room and to hear the laughter and the, and the gasps and everything for each thing that we all talked about. It was awesome. Yeah, that it's nice to be back in front of a crowd. I've given so many presentations via Zoom and, you know, I gave one University of Virginia a few months back and. You don't even know if anyone's there until you finish. Yeah, yeah <laughs> You're exactly. just speaking <laughs> like, hello, is anybody out there? So. Staring at yourself in the little box in the corner. And I love Zoom. It, it does connect us and it got us through the pandemic. But I want real people. And the last thing I'll say about the TEDx, I told my wife that you came a little bit later because I think you couldn't make it to the first night. But in 24 hours we made incredible friends because I feel like we were all in this boat together and we were pulling for each other. And it's amazing that I've only been around you for 12 hours and we've spoken for a while, but I feel like you're my friend. It's amazing how that happened. It is. That's one of probably the best part about it. We're all from different backgrounds, different parts of the country. We were speaking on different topics and there was just an instant bond I felt with several of us. And it's because I think the preparation for it, but then once you got there, it was just us, you know, in, inside, the, <laughs> inside the ring, and it was showtime, and I love that part. Well, by the time this uh, goes live, which will probably be in about a few weeks, I'd, I'd say probably the end of May, hopefully it'll be up and everybody could watch your amazing speech and, and everyone else's. But let's move on, because I didn't really tell much of your story, because I want you to tell it, and it's an amazing story of tragedy and triumph, and I'm just going to give you the mic and just go ahead and tell us your incredible story. I think you can tell by my background. Beautiful, sunny Phoenix, Arizona is where I am right now, where I'm born and raised. And I always knew at a young age, I just, a life of service was what I wanted. And had thoughts about being a police officer, ended up being pretty good at golf, got a college scholarship out of high school and gave that a shot. For not very long, only about six months, it didn't take me long to figure out that I was definitely not on the level that some of these golfers are, along with, I realized that at least for me, I was done being a student and ready to move on to that life of service. So I served four years in the Air Force, which was just an outstanding decision on my part, structured discipline, but I wanted and needed, came home. And then again, life changed on me pretty quickly. I got married, uh, had a couple of kids, and ended up with a, a great job as an apprentice lineman. The guys that work on the overhead and underground power lines. I was just kind of cruising through life, you know. I 
not really faced a lot of adversity. My parents were healthy and happily married. All four of my grandparents were alive and married. And again, I'm just cruising through life, not really paying attention to a whole lot. And on March 26th of 1999, I was 26 years old. I came home from work, turned on the five o'clock news. The lead story was a beach police officer named Mark Atkinson had just been shot and killed in the line of duty. And it was my moment of clarity. It was my aha moment that, you know what, you have to be wearing that uniform. You have to be doing that job. And it's hard to even put it into words when you feel a calling and a, and a pull towards something. So I went right away, filled out an application with the city of Phoenix. was very lucky. It's a very difficult job to get, especially back in 1999. A lot of people, you know, not so much today, not a lot of people <laughs> want to be cops with, with the way the world is. But back then, it was a lot of people wanted it. And I was uh, very lucky to be given the opportunity. The academy, you know, I found it to be very easy, enjoyable, almost just to learn the tricks of the trade, to learn criminal law, to learn defensive tactics and, and high-risk vehicle stops and all that stuff. First graduating class in 2000 and being a patrol officer, especially on the streets of the city that I grew up in, the city that I love and care about, is just so rewarding. I always tell people, I still teach at our academy, and you know, if you have the foundation that you do this job with the right honor and the integrity behind the badge, I don't care what noise is coming across your TV screen, it is the most rewarding career. And, and I know what you're speaking of. My yeah. whole family are cops. My father is a retired yeah. police officer. My brother's yeah. retired. I got three uncles. And <laughs> I, re I remember as, as a teenager getting pulled over for a traffic uh, violation, they'd say, who's a police officer? Because, you know, New Jersey had those PBA cards. And <laughs> and they'd say, who do you, you know, the, the police officer real intimidated would say, who do you know as a police officer? And I'd say, yeah. well, let me see. My father, my brother, three uncles and two cousins. <laughs> and they're like, all right, go ahead, go. <laughs> So, well, I'll tell you, cops, cops, especially in Jersey and East Coast, are a lot more intimidating than other places. <laughs> My dad is from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and yeah, it's a little more intense back then. I, I, I don't know if I could have done that part of it. But, anyway, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So no, go ahead. I, I, love I, I love that. I love that. Nepotism is a beautiful thing in this career field. So yeah, again, I'm cruising through life. I've got beautiful, young, growing family. I've got the job that I truly was meant to be doing and loved every day of it. And about 14 months in, ironically, on March 26th of 2001, exactly two years to the day after Mark Axton had been killed, the reason that I became a police officer. I went to work that day, uh, three in the afternoon. I was supposed to work until one o'clock in the morning and at 11.30 that night. So I had gone through more than three-fourths of my shift, and very quiet, nothing going on. And I responded to an emergency call that was actually out of my patrol area. I had no reason to answer for this call, except that the officer that ever visited the time, it was a serious call. It sounded like a violent crime had been committed. It was a dead body. And so I answered up for it. I had a long ways to go being out of my patrol zone, lights and siren. I'm trying to get there as quick as I can. And I stopped at a red light. Again, it doesn't matter what you see on TV when you are running what we call code three lights and siren and you have a red light, you still have to come to a stop. Make sure the people with the green light will yield 
it's an emergency vehicle. And, you know, it only takes a second and a half to clear an intersection. And just as I was going to proceed, I was struck from behind by a taxi cab. The driver was suffering an epileptic seizure at the time. And according to the investigation, he was doing 115 miles an hour when he ran into me. And, you know, looking back on it, I don't know if he had traveled a long ways building up to that incredible speed. And when you're in the middle, you know a lot more about this than I do, but being in the middle of a grand mal seizure, you are out of control of Mm -hmm. what's going on. And, you know, I can only assume that in those last few seconds, he was probably attracted to my overhead lights and he hit me right in the back. And I never saw it. I never felt the impact. You know, I'm, I'm very blessed for that. I was knocked unconscious, which had a lot to do with saving my life. My car burst into flames, traveled almost 300 feet through the intersection at that, you know, incredible speed of an impact. I was propelled forward and so many miracles, twists of fate, timing. I came to rest about 50 feet from a fire truck, which it's just unbelievable that there was a fire truck in the exact intersection at the exact moment that I needed the most. And they were given an opportunity to put their training to use, their calling. It's easy to sit here and state facts and state a timeline, but you know, we are all human beings. You're an ICU doc. You know, sometimes it's always nice for for careers like this when you get a little bit of detail. When you get a little bit of, hey, here's what's coming in right now, or here's the call you need to go to, and it's a shoplifter. It's a guy with a gun. It's a burglary. You know, for a cop, you get a little bit of time to assess. And these firefighters, I I think about them all the time. They were on their way to a call, and then all of a sudden, the world actually exploded right in front of them. And then for them to see it's a police car, there is a heightened sense of, you know, the camaraderie and the care that goes into, you know, doctors, nurses police, fire, teachers, that, you know, no shame in any other career field, but there is a connection with several of us. And I think about them all the time that they were, again, just human beings who happen to put on a uniform at the beginning of that shift, but it doesn't mean that they are the bravest and the strongest and that fight or flight syndrome isn't real. So I like to give them a lot of credit for what they did. They got me out of the car in 90 seconds, which is unheard of. I am two and a half miles away from what I would argue with anybody is the best burn center in the United States at Maricopa County Hospital. The staff inside of this burn center is phenomenal. I think they're the second busiest in the country outside of Atlanta, but the talent and the training that is inside these walls is amazing. And I was on their trauma table in less than eight minutes. And I know mm-hmm. as, a, as an ICU doc, you can appreciate that. Yeah. Nobody gets that kind of kind of timing. I had suffered burns to 43% of my body. My neck, head, and face were the worst. My torso was protected by my bulletproof vest, thankfully. And again, being unconscious, I wasn't yelling, screaming, taking in those deep breaths, inhaling the smoke and the flames, which surely would have killed me within just a few minutes. And having my chest spared from the burns, which burns, for those of you listening who don't realize, burns will keep on burning. So it's like somebody putting a, a brick on your chest and another brick till eventually your lungs just can't expand, you can't breathe. So that helped me a lot 
but sitting in the driver's seat, it was from the neck up, my shoulders to my hands, ended up again, 40, and I'm not sure how you all <laughs> come up with these measurements, but 43%. And outside of the burns, I had two cracked ribs and a mild concussion. I mean, uh, I would have gone home just a few hours after the accident, except for the car bursting into flames. I spent two and a half months in a coma. I mean, it should go without saying I was not expecting to live. I had some of the best doctors in America, and they told my family very bluntly, Jason will not survive. I was in a medically induced coma. They had to remove all of that dead bacteria filled tissue. And then I was faced with, you know, obviously the loss of all those fluids and the protective covering that we are born with. So I was a tissue recipient. I had dozens of tissue donors. And the gift of life is not just a cliche. It's not just a few words. It means something. You know, reading the book, and I got to say to everybody out there, like, you have to read the book. I knew Jason. I heard his TED Talk. I knew your story. We spoke a few times, but I didn't know the detail of the book. I mean, so now you have severe level four burns and, you know, over your entire face, you're in the best place that really you could be. And still, when your wife comes to the hospital, the doctors pretty much tell her that you're not going to survive, correct? Dr. Dan Caruso, unfortunately, he passed away four years ago of cancer at the young age of 53. And he was just one of the greatest healers and lifesavers this world has ever known. It's, it was a terrible day to lose him. But he told my family, my parents, my wife, told them very matter of fact that Jason, I've never seen this. To, to a head face these kind of burns, nobody can survive this. And for him to go to work, and you know what I love is it, it took, I'm so into the human side of things. Again, it does not always matter the level of education we have or what outfit we put on every day. We are human beings with emotions and, and our own story, our own set of adversity and families and things like that. And it was probably... A year and a half after the accident, but I was back in the hospital for a surgery. He came in after a shift one day and pulled up a chair and he sat with me. And he gave me a chance to hear his side, what he saw, what he felt, why he did what he did from, you know, I wanted to understand why did you have to remove my entire appearance, my nose, my ears, my eyelids? Why am I blind? Which I was 100% blind at the time. And he said to me, that about halfway through the first surgery was seven hours of just removing everything to get down to something. And fourth degree is down the last layers of muscle into the bone. It, it is as deep as it can go. And he said that about halfway through the surgery, he put up his hands and he actually said out loud to everybody in the OR, why are we doing this? What are we doing? Even if he lives, what's the point? And, you know, a lot of people might question, well, you know, you're a doctor, you took an oath, you, you're supposed to have this code, you know, all these things that you're going to save lives. Well, you know what? You're still a human being. It was so powerful to me to hear my doctor, the guy who saved my life, say to me that he questioned his own reasoning behind doing it. And, and I've never forgotten that. Very powerful to put that human intimacy into it. And I, and I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, and that's what we are fighting. That was my TED talk was about personalizing medicine. 
I can tell you as an ICU doctor takes care of the little premature babies, I read the book when that quote comes along, we're in the middle of surgery, he says, what am I doing? It choked me up because as doctors, we do struggle with that. We want to heal everyone. As we say in medicine, I'll do everything I can for you. I just don't want to do everything I can to you. And we struggle with that. And I've struggled with that many times. Am I doing something just because I can, or am I doing something to help? And so thankfully, uh, he kept going. And in the book is incredible. And I think you said 50 surgeries. How many you've had? I've had 56. And to put that into perspective, I have not had one since 2008. I finally reached a point where I was, you know, I was healthy. I was getting stronger. I was out of pain. And all the elective surgeries, I just finally got tired of of the little things, you know, the IVs. And then, of course, there were times I'd go in for what I thought was going to be a minor surgery, and it turned into a 10-day life-threatening staph infection. And I'm like, you know, Jace, of all you've overcome, all your families had to deal with, quit, quit risking it. So the 56 surgeries was really in a short seven-year time frame. And I'm sure as I get older, I'm 48 years old right now, I'm sure as I get older, I don't know what's coming. Nobody's supposed to have survived fourth degree burns. So as I have issues with my eyesight or my breathing, things like that, I'm not going to shy away from taking care of things. But as far as making myself pretty, I'm uh, I'm good. (laughs) Let's talk about, since the topic of this is difficult conversations, I'm going to ask you something at the end, but you had to have some very difficult conversations with doctors along the way, giving bad news. And also, I'm sure you had to make some decisions about these elective surgeries. You talked about the human spirit and the doctors who really connected with you. What did you notice about some doctors and nurses who were really that you were able to bond with and maybe some that just seemed to be all business? And can you comment on that, the different types of approaches that they made? Yeah, that's something that I think is so important. And again, your TED Talk is about that side of it. And I had to learn that the hard way, you know, because before this happened, I just assumed like everybody else who doesn't know any better that doctors will do what they're supposed to and take care of you. I didn't know about the human side and the emotional side and what you need that's sometimes more important than the physical. And being injured in the line of duty, I was afforded the opportunities to go wherever I want and see whoever I want outside of, obviously, the initial emergency and going to, I was caught on, I was on fire, so I needed to go to the burn center. But outside of that, I got to travel, and I went all over the place. I mean, I was at Fairfax Nova Hospital in Virginia. I was at, in Boston, in New York City. I was trying to find the best there, there were and throughout these surgeries. And I did. I, you know, I ran across doctors nurses, even in the burn center. I know my wife, she had, I had a couple of nurses that she went to my doctors and said, don't ever let that nurse get back in Jason's room. And, and it's okay to be like that. I think we weren't against everybody. We weren't against every piece of advice or every medical decision or procedure. We were against people who did not seem to have what we needed as a family and what I needed personally. And That is just simply, hey, it doesn't matter my accident. It doesn't matter the job that I was doing. It doesn't matter what I look like right now. I am alive and drawing my own breath, and I am Jason. And I need to be treated as such. I need to be treated as Jason, 
as a father, as a person who has a reason and a chance to fight and overcome this. And I need some help. I am vulnerable right now. And vulnerability, I have found there's an incredible amount of strength and beauty inside vulnerability. But you need a lot of help. And that's when you want to surround yourself with people who are willing to help. And, you know, it's the same thing as you get to choose your friends. And if you have toxic friends, people who don't have your best interests and support you, then it's okay to let them go and keep your inner circle close. Well, it's the same thing for me with the medical profession. I really tried to hone in on the people who had my best interests and we could, you know, we could laugh together. We could cry together. It's okay. Again, you can, even for doctors, it's okay to walk in my room and, and tell me that not only tell me the truth, but then also to tell me that you're scared. You're not sure exactly what's right and let's work on it together. And, and I was lucky over the years to find that in the medical because they're out there. I mean, just like cops in every profession that has the 10% or whatever that aren't that good, 90% of doctors and nurses are out of this world phenomenon and they want to take care of you. They want to help you. And I had to help them too, right? I had to have a fighting spirit. I had to say, you know, I'm willing to try this. It wasn't always no, or you're crazy, or that hurts too much. It was like, I believe in you. If you say that this will work, if you want the ball, you know, in the fourth quarter on the last play, then that's what I need. And it's, it was a beautiful thing to have that. And, and now the friendships I've built, now that I don't need any medical procedures, I can be just friends with all these people. And it's awesome. It's the X factor, and this is what I've really dedicated the last 20 years to, the X factor in medicine is that medicine's not only about information, it's about relation. And there's a certain X factor of those nurses that and doctors that you bonded with. I do believe all doctors and nurses are compassionate. Some of them just don't convey it. When you have that bond, there's something special about that bond that we had early on one of my first guests, his name is Marcus Engel. And Marcus had a similar story to yours in that when he was 19 years old, was blindsided and T-boned and instantly went blind and had 50 surgeries just like you. But so he's in the trauma center. Every bone in his face was broken. And Marcus Engel wrote a book called I'm Here. Because what he remembered in the midst of, you know, a 19 year old kid being in a trauma center where people are cutting his chest and screaming and yelling and do this and do that. And he's bleeding to death and they're hanging IVs. Someone came who was a nurse tech, a nurse assistant, held his hand and just said, I'm here. And that's, that's what he remembered. And I'll bet you there's certain people that you remember that helped you through that, not including your wife. Those are the people I do remember, the ones who would just touch my arm or my hand and simply say something like that. I'm, you know what? I'm right here and I'm not leaving. Amazing. So you go through all this. Not only do you survive, you end up going back as a police officer. And I think you even played golf again, right? Even though your hands are, are you playing a little golf or are you hitting a golf ball? You know, I'm very proud of both those things. So many people, my doctors, my friends, really everybody said my career was over and I'm the one who you know, who stood up and said, no, you know, I'm a cop, not 40 hours a week, and it's not going to be taken away. I, I did go back. I ended up being a homicide detective, which was just wonderful to do something 
so much more important than just me, you know, speaking for victims who couldn't speak for themselves and working with families like that. And then, yeah, and, you know, the golf, I think it's important to talk about that because that is the one thing that I gave up on. The one thing that I said, can't, because I was a two handicap when I got hurt. I mean, I could play this game and my hands are very deformed. I've had so many surgeries and therapy to get my hands just to where I could do very basics, open, you know, something to make dinner. But the thought of ever tying a shoe again, tying a tie was nowhere in my mind, but especially to hold on to a little golf club with these hands and, and the eyesight that I was, you know, doctors, amazing what they did in getting me some eyesight back to where I could drive and work. And, you know, I don't have 20-20 vision, but I can see good enough to do these things. And when I started to practice golf again, which was around 2006, I worked at it just as I worked at golf just as hard as I worked at learning how to walk again, learning how to eat food, learning how to talk through these skin grafts or the pain of these hands. And I did get back to playing golf on a regular basis. And I got my handicap back down to a one. I mean, there was a time I sat there and I said, you know, your handicap is lower than it was when you had 10 dexterous fingers and perfect eyesight. And again, it's silly and simple to, to talk about golf when you're comparing it to fourth degree burns, but it was so important in my recovery process. It was so important to tell other people that there's nothing as powerful as a made up mind. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're doing it for somebody else, like as a doctor, you're trying to help somebody. As a cop, you're trying to help somebody. Or personally, when you're alone with your thoughts, which everybody should know, it's the most dangerous place you're ever going to be. And you're there all the time. You're stuck with your thoughts all the time. And that was a big part of me knowing that I was okay, was to get back to just the normalcy and to be good again. That's something I used to be good at. Nothing changed. I played golf before. I play golf now. What's different? That's amazing. Coming from someone who's a 16 handicap and can't get it down. <laughs> and whether I play six times a week or once a month, I'm still 16 handicap. And, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll have to come out to Phoenix for a few lessons uh, or something. Let's talk about someone in the book. I mean, your wife is incredibly dedicated. And the, the love that she showed and that you have for each other, it goes without saying. But there's another person in, in your life that really, to me, exemplifies friendship and camaraderie between two police officers. And that was Brian Chapman. Tell me about Brian. And there's a part in the book where I can't remember his name, but Brian's boss said to him after that fateful night, your job is to take care of the family. And I think it was a long time before he actually went back. He, his, that was his only job, and he took it willingly. He took it very serious. You know, he likes to tease me that he went from working 40 hours a week to working 90 hours a week. <laughs> but, yeah, and again, the human side. Just the other day, I was teaching at the academy, and Brian is now the commander in wow. charge of our academy. So when the recruits see him, it's that level of respect. And, of course, chain of command is big with us. But I had him stand next to me. I said, you know, just like all of you, we sat in those chairs. We're just people. And here's what Brian went through. And, you know, he's the one who identified me at the hospital through 
a strange set of circumstances that he happened to intercept the ambulance. He took one look at me and, and he actually said, thank God, that's not Jason. You know, he couldn't get a hold of me. I wasn't answering my cell phone. I'm not answering the police radio. So he thought it was me, but then he saw me and, and thanks God that it wasn't. And that's pretty powerful. And then when they took me into the hospital room and cut off my uniform, he recognized and identified me through a tattoo on my arm. And you're right. He was faced. He, he got no time to mourn his own feelings. He didn't even have time to worry about me along, just like the doctors. He knew I was going to die. And he had to go wake my wife up in the middle of the night. It was changed her life forever. It's so powerful. And I went through this later, not with people I knew and loved. I went through it. I did a lot of next to kin notifications as a homicide detective. It's a strange, powerful feeling to know you're about to change this person's life forever. As soon as you utter those words. And he said he pulled up in front of my house and he actually sat there for about five minutes just to give my wife that extra five minutes of peaceful sleep before he knocked on the door. And, and then he was, he, he took care of her, he got her to the hospital, got my parents out of bed, got all of our friends down there. And then he was right there with me through everything from therapy to just great conversations, telling me what's going on the streets, not talking about my injuries. And again, I'm just Jay, I'm still Jason. And mm-hmm. we, we laughed about stuff. We talked about our kids. Uh, you know, he's a husband and a father. He understood. And he's just been right there with me when I first started traveling and speaking. And I needed that emotional crutch of, you know, I didn't want to get stared at walking through airports alone or trying to go get food and not be able to read a menu or whatever. And, you know, thankfully, I finally overcame that and I travel alone now. And it, it does give me a lot of strength. But Brian was the one. He was always there. And all these years later, we're best friends and I respect what he's gone through. Again, everybody has a story, right? Nobody would know to look at him, but what he went through with me was maybe different, but I would say just as difficult as what I went through. It's harder to watch somebody you love go through something than it is to actually go through it. I firmly believe that. I had the easiest part of this compared to my wife and my children, my parents and my friends. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Brian is highlighted in the book because he's an outstanding individual. And again, now he's the commander of the academy in the fifth largest city in the country. He'll probably end up being the chief of police in the next five years. I mean, he's awesome. The uh, famous Rabbi Kushner that I talk yeah. about in this all the time, you know, he spoke when bad things happen to good people. I saw him in an interview many years ago, and he was discussing the difference between curing and healing. And he said, God doesn't always cure, but God always heals. And what he said is, what God does is God sends you people to help. And it sounds like he sent you these amazing doctors. He sent you a wife who I haven't met her, but she's an amazing person. And the love that you guys have and people like Brian. And I'm a true believer that in tragedy, God will, God will send you those people that will help you. And that's, just an amazing story. So, Jason, last week we were supposed to do this, but you had a final baseball game, I think. And now tell us the story. You have how many children now? I have three children. My daughter, so I had two at the time. I had a seven-year-old daughter and a son who turned three while I was in my coma. And I love talking about my kids because you talk about inspiration and watching people overcome adversity. My daughter 
grew up. She's finishing her final year of a psychology program at Baylor University doing developmental child psychology. She got married three years ago. I got to walk her down the aisle. She is now six months pregnant. I'm going to be a grandpa. And yeah, now at my age, I'm so glad I started so young because <laughs> she's 27 and I'm going to be a young grandpa. My son who turned three in a coma, he grew up with a tremendous amount of adversity. You know, he had a severe eating disorder. He had just a ton of anxiety. Uh, it's a lot to go through at that age, that life change. And it was all the way up until he graduated high school. It was a scary thing. And he went off to college and became a hotel management major. And just a week ago, he moved to Manhattan. And Whoa. I mean, this kid who couldn't eat or leave home is now living in New York City, working at a hotel in Times Square. And I just, he really is my biggest inspiration. And then I asked you to reschedule last week because we had a, uh, again, so much credit to my wife and how she overcame this. But we had another baby. 18 months after the accident and it really put into perspective for us while i love my doctors and my firefighters it was a chance to show not only me but them this is why you did what you did this is an entire life and when he grows up if he has children if they have children now we're talking about something that goes on and on for generations and he's grown up to be just an amazing young man he's getting ready to graduate high school He's very good at baseball. And uh, yeah, I, last Monday was the final home game at his high school. And I knew that I was never going to see him in that uniform again. And I wasn't about to miss it. You know, thankfully, his baseball days aren't over. He's going on to play college baseball in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so it's a weird time of, I'm so emotional these days because I've got a daughter pregnant in Texas. I've got a son in New York City. I've got a son moving to North Carolina. And all of a sudden, the house is empty. And I'm like, wow, that snuck up on me really fast. But they're just beautiful souls. So much compassion and love in these kids. And they're doing great things. I'm very proud of them. And they've helped me out a lot. I'm sure that through you, they've seen what the human spirit can do with people who yeah. fight through adversity. And sounds like they've learned an awful lot from you. By the way, if anybody was not paying attention his son was born 18 months after the tragedy. So, so do the math. I mean, that's a quick recovery. Jason, at any point during all this pain, because I know it's a painful procedure, at any point, did you consider giving up? There were times that first year, especially, you know, I always say whenever something really big happens to you, maybe like a divorce or a catastrophic injury or a death in the family, you could always look back at a date and say, I was doing this on this date and I want to go back to that. So that first 365 days, it's like a just a little box that you're stuck in. And once you pass that first anniversary, then it's like you can breathe again. At least that's how it was for mm -hmm. me. And thankfully, I didn't want to commit suicide. I didn't have any serious mental problems over this. I didn't have any PTSD because I wasn't targeted. The guy was having an epileptic seizure. He wasn't trying to hurt me. And I'm very lucky for that. I am grateful for that. And I recognize that. But there were a lot of times that I just was like, you know what, with this appearance, being blind was so claustrophobic and terrifying. The shape of my hands, there were times where I just wanted to sit at home and be left alone. And that was okay. You know, it, and it was okay for people to leave me alone and give me those few hours or maybe a day or two. 
And then I'd be like, all right, let's get back into it. Let's get back to therapy and fight. So I didn't necessarily want to give up, but there were times I just, I needed a break mm-hmm. for sure. And again, I always tell people this, it's hard, but it's okay to not be okay. And it is more than okay to be vulnerable. Even though we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to say when we are, but it really is a beautiful place to be because you just build so much strength and you see so much beauty inside of that. And so that helped me a lot, even to this day. You know, again, I'm very emotional this week. I, I One son moved to New York, one son finished high school baseball. And I, I've shed more tears in the past seven days than in the past seven years combined. And I still smile when I'm crying because I'm like, you know what? It's so great to be alive and feel this range of emotions. And there's a lot more coming. I know, you know, I'm going to uh, go through a lot more in life and I'm appreciative for what I have gone through that I'm, I'm where I am and I am smiling. I am happy and I know I'm going to be okay. And the final part of the book is not only did you do amazing things to help yourself, you are a great role model for your kids and, and everyone out there who is fighting adversity, but you ended up helping and probably saving the lives of many other police officers because of the Ford Motor Company. And as I read the book, I'm telling you, you got to read this book because <laughs> no, you, I'm not just blowing smoke up you, you know what, but actually this book could be a movie, Jason. I mean, this is a great book because your lawyers, as part of a class action, right, go after the Ford. The Crown Victoria was having problems for years, right? A lot of years. And this also helped me not only give me some purpose in life, but Again, the added, just keep piling on the gratitude and the perspective. So many police officers have died in these rear and fuel fed fires, countless civilians that don't get discussed on TV like my story did. And I'm the one who gets a fire truck in the intersection. So how dare I, you know, I'm not going to question God as to why, and I'm certainly not going to be angry at him, but I do think that all of these other individuals deserved the same opportunity to go home to their families. And they didn't get that. I got the fire truck in my intersection. So I was darn sure going to fight and be a face. It's easy to talk about people when they die, right? Because it they're gone. And but when you look at my face and you hear my voice, I get to put up a fight. And so you yeah, have the advocacy to get these cars to be made safer. And then finally, Ford quit making them in 2011. And now you do not hear about these accidents and a lot of lives have been saved uh, through a a lot of people worked on this. I mean, so many people fought this fight and I'm very proud of that. And you saved numerous lives. You could have easily just said, listen, I've been through enough. I don't want to go through this because you had to give depositions. But you wanted to make sure that your fellow police officers or really anyone driving these cars. And so now they're gone. And and partly that's because of you and the other people that were involved in the lawsuit. So that's amazing. Jason, I usually finish each podcast with a question. This one's going to be a hard one for you. Or maybe not, because this is called Difficult Conversations. Out of all the difficult conversations that you had, what do you think was the toughest one? And give us some advice on how to navigate that. Yeah, as you can imagine, that old saying, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors is very true. And to say that my wife and I had a lot of tough conversations, uh, you asked just a few minutes ago, I felt like giving up. And I remember during one of my, what I call quiet periods, my wife, I mean, she 
she was yelling and screaming at me. I wouldn't be surprised if she broke a couple things in the house. And she told me, if you think I've gone through what I've gone through so that you could give up now, you're crazy. That's not what we're doing here. And, and then my, you know, my desire to go back to work against the advice. I mean, I even Dr. Crusoe who died, I called him and said, I need you to write me a prescription for a bulletproof vest. I don't know if you know this, but if you get injured, if your vest gets ruined on the line of duty, you get to replace it. Those things are expensive. They're like mm-hmm. seven, 800 bucks. And when I called him, he said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm going back to work. He goes, no, you're not. You can't go back to work. And I said, yes, I can. And I am. So I really don't know what the, the toughest one is because there are so many surrounding what's the best thing to do for our kids at this young age as their minds and their emotions try to develop. What's the best thing to do? I mean, marriage is difficult. You throw in some life-changing adversity, it gets really difficult. You know, we had our fair share of, of fights and, and disagreements and discussions, conversations just with doctors. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I could answer it. No, I mean, you've had so many, it's not a fair question. But There's been so, so many. But the beauty is, I remember the good ones. I remember the positive ones and the ones that were life-changing for the better. And let me answer the question, though, with this, because I want to give my wife, of all the credit she can get, I want her to get credit for this. My wife was the one, no matter what my parents or family was were saying, and of course everybody's got their opinion, right? Everybody's an expert all of a sudden and, <laughs> and thinks they know. And and families, when you go through something like this, you either get closer or you get torn apart. But your spouse is the one who is stuck with the final decision that when a doctor asks a question or says, Here's what I want to do, she has to sign the papers. And these fourth degree burns, I needed something to attach my skin grafts to, and it's called Integra. Well, nobody had ever had their entire head wrapped in Integra. These doctors did not know if it would work. And it was put squarely on the shoulders of my wife. Do you want to try it or not? And the doctors were very honest and just said, we'll do it if you want. We won't do it if you don't want. And she made the decision to say yes, and it saved my life. And I give, so I give her a lot of credit because I can't even imagine what that conversation would have been. Can't even imagine. Yeah. I mean, she's a God certainly sent, <laughs> sent her to you. And so as Rabbi Kushner would say, Jason, I want to talk about what you're doing now moving forward. But before I say that, if you wanted to just tell the audience one piece of advice, and I know you do this during your speaking, what would it be? Don't let the pain of today blind you from the promise of tomorrow. You know, we're going to experience so much in this life and it's short, it's precious. But if we get to continue living, if you get to wake up every day, you've got to find something to be grateful for and to learn from what you've gone through and just to do not give up on anything. And don't forget, you're only going to experience the sadness and the pain, the anger and all these bad things that we don't like. You're only going to experience that if you're lucky enough to live a nice long life. Don't give up on it. Don't give up on the promise of tomorrow because it will come. Time does heal. I mean, I know you know that as a doctor, but it's true. It does get better. Don't give up. And nobody symbolizes that more than you. You retired from the police department and now you're speaking. And where are you speaking? How can people get in touch with you to ask you to present? 
I heard your TED talk and it's amazing. So I know you're pretty good at it. Maybe not as good as golf, but you're a pretty good speaker. So. <laughs> well, I know, you know, those TED talks are intimidating because they're short and only 12 minutes long. My normal presentation is a little over an hour and I have 37 slides and a PowerPoint that, you know, and I, I just speak from the heart. I love doing it. I, up until COVID hit, I was doing about 75 a year all over the country from. Wow. For everything from organ and tissue organizations to law enforcement, hospitals, real estate, accounting firms, you name it. And I just love to go out and share my story and to connect with other people. You know, I always tell people my former career and my injuries are the two least important parts of this story. This is just about life and we've all got a story and we've all got things that we need to overcome. And I mean, I'm so easy to get a hold of because of my crazy last name. And the book is Burning Shield. My website is burningshield.com. Jason at burningshield.com. I'm the only one who checks my emails. I'm the only one who schedules my speaking. I don't have any, you know, assistant. You can see I'm sitting in my living room right now. I don't have an office. I don't have anything like that, but it's something that I love to do. And I hope to do it for many years to come. So in the show notes, I'll put all your contact information. I really recommend that anybody out there is looking for an inspirational speaker call you. This has been amazing. Jason, I am going to be giving a workshop and a lecture in Phoenix in November. It's a four-day conference. I'm going to be speaking the day one and day four. Okay. So if you don't mind giving me 16 strokes, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> Wait a minute. maybe we can play. I'll give you 15 strokes. You give me 15. Well, actually, I'm probably by now an 18 handicap. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but oh, hopefully you're one of those tolerant good uh, golfers that don't care if I'm shaking it all over the place. Nah, so. I just like to be out. And November in Phoenix is awfully beautiful. You know, it's not 100 degrees. And, and we have some pretty good golf courses here. So I'll, uh, I'd love to treat you and spend time with you and come to the conference. That'll be fantastic. I can't wait. I'll send you all those dates and maybe you can do something with my game to get me down to a 14. I, I have no idea, but I, I've had so many lessons. Well, they keep telling me every time I take a lesson, they say, stop trying to kill the damn ball and hit it like a baseball. And I go, yes. And then I try to kill it. So yeah. <laughs> it's in my head. So, yeah. but anyway, Jason, thank you so much. This is always a lot of fun. I'm oh, looking forward to seeing you in November and we'll be in touch real soon. Thanks again. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe or follow as it is on Apple now. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at theorsiniway.com. Again, Jason, thank you, and I will be in touch soon. Sounds great. Thanks, sir. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.